Today's reading is from the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1 to 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this, is this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarnish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Sulai. Again, we're really, um, morning redemption. Um, I, I love those um, all of life interviews, getting to know uh, people in the congregation at a deeper level and then hearing them and their perspective, giving them voice to um, just really important things like the gospel and how it works in their lives. I appreciate that. Of, of course, um, I'm sure you realize that um, uh, staff and elders, just every time Trey gets a microphone, we kind of hold our breath because we're not sure what's going to happen. But uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> it's Memorial Weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. I uh, just want to say, if you uh, served our country, uh, if you have relatives or friends who did, uh, really appreciate that. I've been praying all week about it. Obviously, it's close to my heart. My father served in World War II, um, was a lieutenant in the Navy uh, during for three years on the Pacific, and, and just, uh, again, the sacrifice it's made, uh, really appreciate that. I uh, wanted to acknowledge that. Uh, also, just I didn't say anything last week, but I felt like maybe I should um, this week. I, th I think our, our bass guitar player the last couple of weeks has just been absolutely incredible. I don't know if you've noticed. He's unbelievable. Um, he's also my son-in-law. I don't know if you know. So he and, he and, he and our daughter, Darby, are, are back from, they're taking a, a, about a 10-week break from their uh, graduate school studies in Illinois, and so they've, they're here for the summer. It's great to be here. And and Joey, my son-in-law, says he loves serving in the band because it gives him an opportunity to listen to me three times on Sunday, which he really appreciates. So, so let's move on. All right, so we are in the book of Jonah. We're finishing Jonah today. So we'll be camped out all day long in Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to go back and read uh, chapter 3, verse 10 also to help with the context. But just as a reminder, um, God comes to Jonah, chapter 1, right at the very beginning, and, and gives them a word and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them. And Nineveh is the, the largest city in Assyria. Terrible, terrible people, these Ninevites, these Assyrians. Um, Jonah, who is a prophet of God and, and was already a prophet of God at that time, uh, refused to go because he knows that God, by his own testimony today in chapter 4, he knows that God is a God of mercy a God of steadfast love, who's slow to anger, um, he was worried that God would save them. And he did not think it was right or just for God to save this horrible, awful people group. Um, there also might have been a bit of fear uh, for Jonah to go there because they might have just killed him for doing that. But nevertheless, he flees. He, he says, all right, God says, you're going to go to the northeast several hundred miles, and he flees to Tarshish, which is to the northwest several hundred miles endures this horrible storm on the Mediterranean, eventually gets thrown off the boat, thrown into the water, 
in order to save the rest of the people on the boat, which does happen. He's sacrificed for that. And, a, and God appoints a large fish to swallow him up. And so he spends three days in the belly of the fish. And that's when Jonah kind of really finally comes to his senses and, and realizes that, you know, God is sovereign. God is in charge of all of this. And maybe I ought to go. And he prays this magnificent prayer in chapter 2, which ends, the prayer ends with Jonah saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. And we spent an entire two weeks ago, an entire sermon just on those uh, few words uh, there, the sovereignty of God and that salvation belongs to him. It's, it, it's part of his character. He doesn't possess it in his hand. It's who he is. And, and uh, then last week we looked at chapter 3. Uh, Jonah goes to Nineveh. It took him a while to get there. It was several hundred miles. But once he gets there, he starts to work his way through the city, and he preaches a message which is five words. It's a very simple message. Yet 40 days and you will be overthrown. That's it. And God's spirit moves through the city. And not only the king of Nineveh, but 120,000 people repent and, and show contrition and, and come to God. And the king even says, please, God, relent. Maybe you'll relent from the disaster that you're going to bring upon us. And that's exactly uh, what God does, which sets Jonah up for being very, very disappointed. So that's where we stand Today, I'm going to have two readings today. I'm going to go back and read what Zulai read for us, but starting a verse earlier, and then later we'll get to verses 5 through 11, the last part of the story. So the end of verse 3, the end of chapter 3, it ends like this. When God saw what they did, what the Ninevites did, that they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So they're delivered, they're rescued, they're saved. Now, understand... Um, biblical chapters and verse divisions did not come until the 14th, uh, 13th and 14th centuries. So this is just a narrative. In the original text, this is just a narrative. We tend to stop at the end of 3 and wait and think, but th this story just continues to go into verse 4-1. So God did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So now we're let in on the fact that at the beginning of chapter 1, the beginning of the story of Jonah, we were actually entering the narrative after it had started. It kind of felt like that in the first place. Now we see that that's absolutely true. So I'll talk a little bit about that. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, Please take my life from me. Kill me. I'm ready to die. Because um, it is better for me to die than to live. Kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of his letter to, to the church at Philippi, but for very different reasons. Very, very different reasons. And we'll talk about that when we get into Philippians. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. God wasn't necessarily expecting to engage him in a debate about his emotions, okay? So look at verse 1. This is, I have to tell you something. This, you read this as a preacher, and this is like a preacher's dream, you know? You preach a message, and 120,000 people are moved? That's amazing. That, that I, I'd like three people to be moved. That would be awesome, you know what I mean? I mean, that's just an amazing thing. But, but Jonah's unhappy. He's depressed, and he's angry. That seems weird. There's, there's another Old Testament prophet 
that's more narrative. He doesn't have his own book like Jonah, but he's talked about mostly in 1 Kings, the, the historical narrative book. His name is Elijah. And it's I ironic because Elijah also preached, and after he preached, he also wanted to die and ask God, maybe it'd be best if I just died. But again, for very different reasons. Elijah preached and nobody responded. That's why he wanted to die. Jonah's reason for dying is because 120,000 people did respond. He just doesn't like these people. And so that's why, that's just odd. And the language in verse 1 actually tells us that Jonah, what, Jonah thought that what God had done by relenting from the disaster he was going to um, punish them with, Jonah thinks this is evil. Jonah's like very, he's like many people today who think or even sometimes say out loud, I'm more moral than God. If God would do this my way, it would be much more righteous than the way God is doing it. In fact, I don't even think God's paying attention. I'm more moral than God. God doesn't know what he's doing. And then like I said in verses 2 and 3, we're now let in on this previous dialogue that apparently God and Jonah had been having before this book even got started. And so now we see why chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 makes so much sense. Because they, apparently there had been this, this debate going on about whether or not Jonah would go. And Jonah's going, I'm not going to go because I know you might save them. And that would be a problem for me. And remember in chapter 2, this is interesting, go back to chapter 2, how thankful Jonah was when God showed him mercy, but now he's angry that God has shown the Ninevites mercy. One scholar calls this part of chapter 4 Jonah's speech of hate against a loving God. Again, that's just odd. Odd. And, and, and thinking about it, I found, again, we, we are always ready and quick to assassinate God's character when we believe that we're entitled, when we think that we have a better way, when we want our agenda to be honored and not God's agenda when we believe we're right. Here you go. I'll go. If that makes you uncomfortable, I'll personalize it. I am very, very quick to easily assassinate God's character when I think I'm right. Because you kind of got to if you think you're right, if you think you're entitled. Here you go. When I sin, in order to sin, one of the things in my mind anyway is I first have to assassinate God's character in order to justify my sin. God, you just don't really understand me the way I do. You don't understand my context. You don't know me as well as you, you, you need to. You re God, you really don't have my best interests in mind. This would be better for me than what you have for me. God, your, your notion of justice is wrong. I know better. Your goodness is really not what's best for me. We do that all the time. Maybe not out loud, but internally. In our internal dialogue does that. And while we're in the neighborhood, let's ask this question. What led to Jonah's depression anyway? Now, I recognize depression is a broad and comprehensive topic. There are many reasons why people uh, engage and encounter and, and are depressed. But in Jonah's case, it's really fairly simple. Jonah was depressed because of his false god. His false god had failed him. His false gods of nationalism, his false god of ethnocentricity, had failed him because God was overriding that, that need for Jonah to judge and condemn the Ninevites and was showing the Ninevites instead mercy and compassion. And he was rescuing 
them. So his false god failed him, and that's why he's depressed. So the question then to follow that up is, how much of our depression is because we've discovered our false gods have failed us? Our false gods of power, of status, our pursuit of fame, uh, our pursuit of wealth, our, our education, our career. These false gods in our minds will deliver us something that we think will fulfill us in a way that they were never designed to fulfill us. And when they don't, we get depressed. It reminds me of what our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say all the time. False gods never fail to fail. False gods never fail to fail. Now, here's the good news of our false gods failing us. It's going to push us towards Jesus. It helps us to see the truth and reality of Jesus. It helps us to rearrange our priorities so that they look more like God's priorities. I think there's a prayer that many people pray. I've prayed it too. I think it's a good prayer. The question, though, is what's the heart behind the prayer? Do you really, do you really want to pray this, or does it just sound good? And I've had to ask myself that question. It's that prayer that says, God, make my heart long for the things that your heart longs for. Make my heart break for the things that are breaking your heart. That's a great prayer, isn't it? It's also a dangerous prayer. Because if God actually starts to do that to us, he might call us like he called Jonah to do something that we don't want to do. That's... That's the power of the gospel, though, because if he calls us to do those things, it's going to be by his power, not ours. And it's going to be the power of his love and his mercy and his long-suffering that's going to uh, do it. Finally, uh, I think it's interesting that uh, this is a prayer. I mean, it says it right there in the, in the text. That Jonah prayed this. Isn't it interesting that I don't want to say that this was his worst prayer. Some of our best prayers can be when we're in distress and we're angry. And, and, and the psalms are, some of the psalms are like that. But for, in terms of theological accuracy, Jonah's best prayer was when? During his worst circumstances, when he was in the belly of the fish, that was his best prayer. That's when he was most vulnerable. That's when he was, when he was truly reaching out and, and acknowledging who God is. Now his circumstances are great. He's been saved. He's just preached this magnificent sermon, and 120,000 people have responded. He's sitting outside of the city. And he's got it kind of made in the shade, as we'll see. Some shade, some not so shady. But, but, but this is when he prays a prayer where he says, God, just take my life because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. We talked about this in the first week. We see that Jonah's response to God doing something that Jonah doesn't like is either to get angry or get depressed. And what a connection that makes to so many of us as well. So here's the rest of the story. And let me just warn you, there's so much here in the rest of the story. I've got like 17 points after this, so hang in there, okay? All right? Verse 5, Jonah went outside of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself. That's like a, a shade. And he sat in it in the shade until... He, he should see what would become of the city. He's still hoping that God might destroy the city. Now, the Lord appointed a plant. That, that plant, everybody, what's a plant? Okay, some people think it's a fig tree. Most scholars believe it's a castor oil bush because of the big leafy, um, uh, it's a very big leafy bush. Fig trees are leafy as well. Either one. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter what kind of plant it is. God appointed the plant. That's the point, okay? And he made it come up over Jonah that he might shade his head to save, his, save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly 
glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that the plant withered. When the sun rose, God then appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And Jonah asked that he might die. This is the second time he said that, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make grow, which came into being at night and, per and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And that's the end of the story. It's a real cliffhanger. What in the world just happened? Caleb, do you hear that? It's me. Oh. Okay. Is it fixed? Is my mic on? Thoroughly confused, but I'll continue, okay? So we may not have music after this. You're hoping, yeah, so I can preach longer. That's awesome. All right. Caleb didn't really mean that. He's a musician, so. All right, verse 5. Oh, by the way, okay, I wanted to hit that again. Cliffhanger. We're, we're left with ambiguity at the end of Jonah, right? I'm going to talk a lot about that. It, by the way, it kind of reminds me, if you've read East of Eden, a little bit of ambiguity at the end of East of Eden as well. You're kind of like, okay, what do I do with this? It's a really good question. We're going to talk about what you do with that. With Jonah, not with East of Eden. You can do whatever you want with that, okay? So verse 5, Jonah is hoping that God is going to turn his back on this relenting idea. Maybe he'll still bring disaster to the people of Nineveh. Now here's some irony. Lots of people compare Jonah uh, and, and Jesus. I don't know if you're aware of that. A lot of, a lot of comparisons between Jonah and Jesus. Even Jesus compared himself to Jonah. He said, you know, Jonah was in the belly of the, of the fish for three days. I'm going to be in the tomb for three days. We both emerged, but I'm the truer and better Jesus. Now, that's a paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. I'm better than Jonah. Anyway, the irony, here's some ironies of the Jonah and Jesus comparison. Jonah went outside of the city to brood over it and hate it. Jesus also went outside of the city of Jerusalem during his ministry, but he didn't brood over Jerusalem, and he didn't hate Jerusalem. Instead, he wept over the city. He wept over their spiritual poverty. Nineveh also had spiritual poverty, that's true, but Jonah wanted them smote for it, not redeemed from it. Furthermore, at the end of Jesus' life, Jesus went outside of the city during the crucifixion. He was outside of the city, and he went outside of the city to save the city. He, was, he willingly died for the city, and he died for us willingly. Not Jonah. He wanted to die because of the city. He went outside of the city to die because he hated the city. And, and also from the cross, Jesus asked the Father to forgive those who were crucifying him. Those were Jesus' Ninevites in that moment, the ones crucifying him. And he asked that God would forgive them. Now, we can understand Jonah's angst and fear and hatred. In fact, we know that historically Jonah kind of had a point. 
because several decades later in 722, the, the, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, came in and, and sacked Israel, the northern kingdom, destroyed it, completely destroyed it, ruined Israel. Okay? But condemning his enemies is not what God calls Jonah to do or us to do. That's God's business. Scripture tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God is in charge of the vengeance. Our job is to testify to his love and mercy. And, and I know that's a hard word because we look around this world, lots of injustice. We, we've, been, we've been receivers and perpetrators ourselves of injustice. We know something has to be done, but it's up to God. And, and it feels like God doesn't have our best in mind when, when he talks to us about these hard things. But that's when we have to be willing to push into our faith. That's when the reality of the gospel hits us right in the face. Do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? A, a, a guy that um, has been in prison now for 22 years, and I've been writing him for more than 20, Joe Camara. A couple months ago, I got a letter from him, and he said this. He said, there's too much frosted flakes and not enough shredded wheat in the church. And I know some of you are like, I get that, and he's right. Others of you are like, what in the wide world of sports does that mean? Well, let me, let me help you with that, okay? One of the problems with the church is that people want to come to church, and they just want to have their ears tickled. They, they, just, they just want a little sugar. They don't want any broccoli. They, they, they want to, they're all sweet, and they want to leave all sweet and not be ruffled, not be challenged. The gospel, before it can do its work of saving us and building us up and empowering us, has to shred us. It has to shred us first. It has to shred our hearts. It has to tear down these idols, these false gods, these wrong notions. So he's saying the church really needs more shredded wheat right now, and that's true. Not, not so that we stay shredded, but so that we can come to the gospel, come to Jesus in repentance, and we can be built up by the gospel. And then verse 6, this gets into some text stuff that I love, that I think is important. God appointed a plant. He appointed a plant. It's the exact same word, the same language he uses when he appointed the big fish. Same word. So God uses a fish and a plant in Jonah. But the fish gets all the love. The fish gets all the press. Have you ever noticed that? If you've told anybody that your church is going through Jonah right now, I guarantee you nobody has said, well, tell me about the plant in chapter 4. Everybody's like, well, what about the fish? What about the fish? We're more, it just proves we're way more interested in sushi than salad, which I think is a good thing. But, but nobody talks about the plant, but God appointed the plant too. Not just, not just uh, fr the fish. Also, the language in verse 6 is specifically set in opposition to the language in verse 1. Verse 6 says that Jonah was exceedingly glad for the plant. Jonah thought it was righteous that the plant gave him relief. And in verse 1, he was exceedingly displeased and angry that Nineveh was spared. Jonah thought it was evil that Nineveh was saved. In other words, Jonah saw his salvation as righteous, and he saw the Ninevite salvation as wicked. Kind of a problem. And then in verses 7 and 8, guess what? More appointing by God. God appoints a worm. And then he appoints an east wind. And like the plant, the worm, the east wind, very little press. 
all the love is reserved for the fish. Church, here's what we need to understand. This book of Jonah is not about a fish, not about a plant, not about a worm, not about an east wind. This book is about God. We need to understand that. The book is titled Jonah. I think it should be titled God Appoints, Now Get Over It. God is Sovereign. And then verses 9 through 11, this is the climax of the book, and there's just a ton here. So let me just start. Here we go. Twice, God asked Jonah if his anger is justified. And again, they're rhetorical questions because Jonah's anger is not justified. And again, here's the irony here. Lots of irony here. Most people I know, and many authors have written about this, this same phenomenon as well, but like a lot of people I know, when I'm having discussions with them about God, most people believe that any God who gets angry is not a good God. God can't be good if God gets angry about anything. The anger of God really riles a lot of people, I found. And yet, and yet, some of you may know where I'm going with this, we believe, I believe, I believe, that my anger is good and righteous and correct all the time. We are so hard on God and so easy on ourselves. And yet, God is, in fact, loving and gracious, abounding in mercy and forgiveness, long-suffering, slow to anger. This is Jonah's own testimony right here. I'm not making this up. This is Jonah's own testimony in chapter 4. And, and, and ultimately, don't we want a God who's going to get angry at injustice? Wouldn't we want that? In fact, there's, there's great freedom in the fact that God gets angry at injustice. We get angry at injustice, too. But knowing that God gets angry at injustice, that releases us from the, us from the pressure of, of making sure we get results about our anger at injustices. He's going to call us to do things, and we should do what he's calling us to do. Prison ministry, foster care and adoption, refugees, immigrants, whatever it is. Whatever that is. But, but take the pressure off yourself and realize that God is in charge of the results because he is a God of justice, and he gets God angry at injustice, and we want that. See, we just don't want God angry at our injustice that we've perpetrated. The title of this book could also be the, the Hypocrisy of Human Beings. Here's the next thing. I'll spend some time on this. Many people feel that there needs to be a chapter 5 of Jonah. They get to the end of Jonah, they're like, where's chapter 5? Is it, is it in James maybe at the back? I don't know. Is it a footnote? What happened? It's like a cliffhanger. Okay? Something is missing, they say. Primarily, the question is, well, what happened to Jonah? Okay, here you go. Nothing is missing. There's nothing missing. That's the point. The point is, is that human, the human condition is riddled with hypocrisy, irony, and misjudgment, even as we proclaim our wisdom. In Jonah's case, he finally shows despair over something, and it's a plant. He doesn't show despair over 120,000 people that might get smote. That's probably, there's probably something wrong with that. And I think God wants us to see that. Let me talk just a couple of textual issues here, because I love that stuff and I have the mic. And then we'll get back to this idea of finishing it chapter, with chapter 5. The word persons there, when it says 120, more than 120,000 persons, the word persons there, God could have used any number of, of, of words, but he uses the Hebrew word Adam, from which we get the, the name Adam. Literally, the word Adam means souls. He's, he's digging deeper here with Jonah purposely, saying it's not, just, it's not just this sea of humanity. These are individual souls whom I love, and you're not worried about them. I am. 
And, and I believe there's shades of the Sermon on the Mount here when Jesus, when Jesus says, why are you so anxious and so worried? If you're in God's hands, why? You know, look at the birds of the air, you know? They don't, they don't store things away the way we do, and yet God provides for them. Don't you think he's going to take care of you if he's going to take care of a bird? Look at the flowers in the fields. They don't spin or toil the way we do, and yet God clothes them more spectacularly than he clothed even King Solomon in all of his splendor. Don't you think God is going to take care of you? And the answer is yes, God loves souls. He loves us. Okay? And then that idea that he says 120,000 persons who don't know their left hand from their right hand. What does that mean? They're ambidextrous people. Is that what that means? No, 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 no. It's, it's an idiomatic way in the Hebrew to say that these people are spiritually blind, they're spiritually impoverished, they've lost their way, they're worthy of sympathy, they're still accountable for their sin, but they're worthy of sympathy, and our call, Jonah, Redemption Arcadia, is to witness to God, not condemn. You and I, as God's people, we are never given the blessings of God, the favor of God, the salvation and rescue of God, to hoard it. We are given those things to then pass on, to be a blessing to others, to show favor to others, to proclaim God's salvation and rescue to others. We're not to hoard those things. Jonah wanted to hoard those things. And the cattle, <laughs> and the cattle, if Jonah was concerned about the plant, maybe at least he'd show some compassion for the cows and the bulls, you know? And remember, the, the, the cattle are part of God's creation too. That's that cosmic salvation that Cody talked about two weeks ago. He's going to restore everything, not just to us. So as I said, many people want a chapter 5. And many people, I believe, are unfortunately distracted, I think conveniently for them, by the unanswerable question, what happened to Jonah? You know what? doesn't matter what happened to Jonah. Not important what happened to Jonah. What matters is what are you going to do with this? What matters is what am I going to do with this? Will we press into God or are we going to run? Will we believe God or are we going to believe ourself, our culture, and our idols? Which is it going to be? That's what we're called to at the end of this book. doesn't matter what happened to Jonah. It only matters what you and I do with this story. It is so, it's so comfortable to distract ourselves with the question of what happened to Jonah because then we never have to deal with us. That's pretty comfortable. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book about Jonah, he makes this great point. He says the end of Jonah, the, the end of this book, draws back an arrow and it's pointed at Jonah and Jonah is standing there and as the arrow is released in its flight towards Jonah, Jonah disappears and you and I appear. And so Jonah's arrow actually pierces us. What are we going to do with God, with his mercy, with his long-suffering, with his firm and steadfast judgments? What are we going to do? So the next question in this book, I think this book calls out this question. It's going to get all crazy up in here right now. Who are your Ninevites? Who are my Ninevites? Who are your Ninevites? Some of you, right away, you got some ideas. I'll tell you what. Yes, I have the lack of tact to go here this morning. It's going to be fun. 
I've been a part of this community for long enough to know that I can answer that question, who are your Ninevites, for many of you. I can answer it. For some of you, your Ninevites are Republicans. For some of you, your Ninevites are Democrats. And I can get way more specific. For some of you, your Ninevites, it's not a, it's not a people group, it's one person. And his name is Donald Trump. For others of you, your Ninevites is like a two-headed monster named Bill and Hillary Clinton. Or their successors, Bernie, Joe, AOC, whoever, Schumer, okay? Listen, the idol, the false god of politics in this community is so thick, it is suffocating us. Or as Brian Regan would say, suffocating for you Brian Regan fans. It's suffocating us. That's what false gods do to us, is they suffocate us. And, and hear this, please. Finding your identity and happiness in who you are against is the saddest and most insignificant human existence I can possibly imagine. It's a huge waste of energy. Uh, David Brooks writes this. Hatred has become the defining emotion in our political life, and I would even argue in some of our religious life as well. But he says, hatred has become the defining emotion in our political life. As my co colleague Thomas B. Edsel reported last week, according to a recent paper, 42% of the people in each party regard their opposition as downright evil. Nearly 20% of both Democrats and Republicans believe that their political adversaries lack the traits to be considered fully human. They behave like animals. Roughly 20% of Democrats and 16% of Republicans say that the world would be better off if large numbers of the other party died. Ninevites. Ninevites. The political undertones of Jonah should be obvious to us. Everybody sees them that reads this book with any depth whatsoever. Should be obvious. And, and by the way, I want to I make sure we, we, that we say this. We need to understand this. A political party does not have and is not necessarily characterized by evil. If it were, then it would be easy to say all those people over there are evil. The problem with that is that where evil resides, Scripture tells us where evil resides is not in a political party or not in money or not in sex. Where evil resides is where? In our own heart. That's what we're called to deal with here. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, it's so funny. We, we live in a culture today. I'm sure you'd agree with this. Uh, our culture is obsessed with sex and politics. Sex and politics. We also live in a culture where, where people say all the time, the church needs to be re more relevant. So sex and politics, the church needs to be more relevant. But what happens when, when the church does this, okay? When we talk about sex or politics, you know what people say? I get this all the time. Why do you spend so much time talking about sex? Or how dare you talk about politics in the church? Maybe we talk about these things because, first of all, they're both all over the Bible, 
as false gods. Just read the letters in the New Testaments and read the, the prophets in the Old Testament. They're false gods. And we talk about them because our culture is obsessed with both. And occasionally, I think the church ought to speak to the culture. Here's something else the culture is obsessed with. I hear this all the time. People need to speak truth to power. Except the church. The church has no business speaking truth to power. Really? Is that what we see going on in the Gospels? Did you see Jesus shrinking away from the people with power? Oh, I don't want to go over there. Those powerful Pharisees, I don't want to have anything to do with them. How about in the prophets? Do you see the prophets shrinking away from the people with, with power? Jonah, yeah. Okay. But not the rest of them. You, you, you see, like Jeremiah's like, yeah, I'm going to get thrown in a well. Okay, here I go. Here I am, Lord, send me. That's Isaiah. Okay. Here's, I know there's a lot of problem with, problems with politics, but here's, here's how I see it. Okay. I think this is the biggest problem with politics. In practice, politics is the quest for power rather than the manifestation and application of competence and giftedness. In other words, it's a false god. It doesn't mean that we don't need it and we shouldn't have it. We've got to have something, but we're just, we're way too focused on we're not way too focused on it. We're focused on what we believe it's going to do for us and how we think we can control and manipulate it. That's a false god. Like I said, the political undertones of Jonah should be obvious. And so maybe let me just take a few minutes and talk about uh, that in light of the fact that the 2020 election is coming up and what maybe you can expect from us and from your pastor during this next election cycle. And, and in doing that, maybe we know a little bit more about what we might hope from you as well. Um, I had an email last year. You, you can see the email if you'd like to because I know some people are like, did that really happen? Yeah, it really happened, okay? The person wrote to tell me that, and I quote, it is a dereliction of my duty as a Christian leader not to tell the congregation who to vote for. It's a dereliction of my Christian duty not to tell the congregation who to vote for. By the way, I want you to take one guess as to who he wanted me to tell you to vote for. His candidate. <laughs> his candidate. Doesn't matter who it is. It really doesn't matter. Okay? It's, his, it's, you know, it's, it's the person who says, you know, if you would change your music to this kind of music, the, the kind of music I like, you could really grow this church if you just changed your music to the kind of music I like. It's, it, I've never had anybody come to me and go, I really hate this kind of music, but if you did this kind of music, your church would grow. Never had that conversation. Nobody's ever come to me and said, you know, you should, I'm going to vote for this person, but you should tell everybody to vote for that person because it might be best for them. It, 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 it never happens. That's our desire. I talked about this last week, of focusing in on one thing that we think is best for us and then trying to get everybody else to be on the same page, okay? Now, I don't hold it against this person who he voted for. I will just admit that it seems a tad presumptuous that he should tell me who you should, uh, that I should tell you who to vote for. That seems a little bit presumptuous. And it doesn't matter, again, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he thinks I should tell you Trump or Bernie or Hillary or Joe or whoever. Doesn't matter. Now, I know some of you think the reason I talk about this is occasionally is because I, I really don't want to be bothered with it. That's simply not true. What I found is that many of you don't want to be bothered with it because right now I'm pressing on your idol. That's the truth of it. Why do you talk about this so much? It makes me so uncomfortable when you talk about this. I know because it's an idol. 
And it's kind of my job as a, as a pastor to point out that maybe Jesus, it's possible that Jesus isn't your first love. You love Donald Trump, or you love your hatred for Donald Trump more than you love Jesus. That's a problem. That's a problem. And it's an indication of our heart. Now, here you go. Hear this. Being apolitical is not the answer. In other words, let's be politically neutral and never talk about it. That's, that's not the answer. Uh, and the reason is because if you don't think the Bible is political, then you have not read the Gospels and you have not read the prophets. They're talking about stuff that we're talking about right now today all the time. Same stuff. God has a position on a lot of this stuff. But also, aligning with a political party or a candidate, as many Christians want churches to do, that's also not the answer. And the reason is because David Brooks talks about this. He, he says, because both political parties demand what is called policy purity to their platforms. In other words, if you want one Republican or Democrat policy, both parties will tell you that you also have to agree and advocate with, advocate for all of their policies. In other words, here you go. Political parties do not want us any longer to think for ourselves. That's just true. They don't want us to think for ourselves. And I am a big advocate of taking Scripture and allowing us to think for ourselves and straining those things through the Word of God. And that's what we're going to do. I, I, here you go. I, I got this from Aaron Bear. Some of you remember Aaron Bear. Uh, here you go. So this is his language, but I think it's brilliant. I think what's best is to call political balls and strikes by using Scripture as our guide for that strike zone. There you go. I just used a baseball illustration instead of hockey. Some of you, for some of you, that's like an answer to prayer. Look, I'm even getting applause down here, okay? All right? So we can talk politics, but we're going to talk about it in the context of what Scripture says. By the way, that's true for sex as well. Doesn't matter what you think or what you feel about sex. We're going to look at what Scripture has to say about it. That's what it means to be a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, by the way. Okay? So I'm going to spend this next ele election season and the ones after them, if I'm still around, preaching the gospel and talking about Jesus. And occasionally, when it's in the biblical text, as it is here with Jonah, we're going to talk about political issues and even human sexuality issues. Now, the sexuality isn't in Jonah, but... That seems to be a hot button for people as well. And I believe that one of the reasons we're so prone to placing our trust, ideology, and hope in political parties and political characters is that we don't fully understand and appreciate the cross of Jesus. It's, it's a theological deficiency for us. We ask questions like, how could God be so cruel as to punish his son or punish anyone for their sin? That's not a loving God. The reason is because God is first and foremost holy, and in his holiness, he simply cannot abide in sin. Sin must be judged. That's a non-negotiable for God. On the other hand, people think, how could God be so merciful as to redeem those evil people through the sacrifice of Jesus? Here you go. Because in God's character, he cannot but offer us grace and mercy and salvation that he was willing to pay for through his son. That's pretty amazing. So here you go. At the cross, this is so important to understand about the cross. At the cross, the two things that God requires in his character, absolutely, unnegotiably requires in his character, are accomplished. Judgment of sin and salvation for sinners. That's accomplished at the cross, and that is a beautiful thing. 
So now that we've gotten that out of the way, we're going to end with this. I promise, I'm on point 17. That's my last point, okay? It's the problem of mercy. Jonah had a real problem with this. Sometimes we do too. We often struggle to reconcile, uh, reconcile a God of justice with a God of mercy. But we need to remember, again, this all belongs to God. It's God, not us. God says in his word, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Also, our problem is we never get the whole story, right? We don't know everything that God knows. What looks harsh to us is actually perfect justice to God. What looks like frivolous and foolish mercy to us is perfect grace and restoration to God. And we should trust that because we're not the arbiters. We also need to remember that it really isn't our job to reconcile this. Only God knows why he does it and how he does it. And a big problem for us, and and this is true of Jonah too, but a big problem for us is that if we don't see a good reason for what God does, we assume that there must not be a good reason. (laughs) But he's always got a good reason because he's God. And again, it's a comment on Psalm 115.3. The Lord sits in the heavens and he does what he pleases. He's God. We're not. It's a great old Tom Schrader quote. Again, our, our founding pastor, Schrader, used to say this all the time. Just because you and I have a question or an objection, it does not ever obligate God to answer. And by the way, if, if you're in Jesus, if you're a gospel-centered person, here's, here's what you need to understand. God is probably going to call you and I to do something like Jonah that we don't necessarily want to do because we're his now. Some of you have heard my story about prison ministry. 20 years ago, I said, all right, God, I'll go into the pastoral ministry if that's where you're calling me, but I'll never do prison ministry. That's our deal. What's my, one of my greatest passions today? Some of you know it's prison ministry. God laughed at me, I'm sure. I didn't hear him, but he laughed. And then he calls me into prison ministry. He's going to call us into things that are hard because it's through his power and his love and his grace and his mercy. Here's the beautiful reality. You and I are simultaneously in Christ, righteous and sinners. That's weird, isn't it? Come on, admit it. That's just weird. We're simultaneously in Christ, not outside of Christ, in Christ. We are simultaneously righteous and sinners. We hate that tension, but that tension is true. We're more comfortable living in a, in a horns and halo world. You know what I mean? You, you understand what horns and halo are? You, you understand the, the whole research behind that? We look at people and, like, if they have a halo, we, they can do no wrong. And if they do something wrong, we create narratives that allow for that. Or if, if, they, if they have horns, they can do no right. And if they do something right, then we create a narrative that allows for them to have done something right, but it really wasn't that. We're a halo and horns world. We're a good and bad world. We're a righteous and a wicked world. That, we're, we're an inner out world. But in Christ, God sees us as both. He sees us as holy and sinful. He, he, he sees us as beautiful and flawed. He sees us as righteous and unjust. And in Romans chapter 8, it says that he's always working on conforming us to his son. Yet in Christ, here's the joy and here's the hope. In Christ, it's the holiness and the righteousness and the beauty and the purity that will ultimately prevail. That's the gospel. And that's what we place our hope in. And that's what happened at the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we love you and we praise you. And, and even it, when we have 
a really challenging time with what you're saying to us. And Jonah is challenging. And so I pray that you would just remind us of Jonah's own words, that you are slow to anger, that you abound in steadfast love. And that steadfast love and slow anger is directed and, and given to us. What a great gift that is. We thank you for that. We pray that we would press into that by the power and the filling of your Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.